If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, please. And you will notice a scary thing at the top of your handout if you look at it. And that is the number of verses we intend to cover this morning. And I will set your minds at ease to begin with. Uh, the center section, about 50 verses, I'm just going to cover by way of summary. And you're going to go back and do the hard work of reading all the way through that. So don't worry. Don't fret. That's my, uh, that's my encouragement to you as we begin. <clears throat> uh, last week, we were introduced to a man by the name of Stephen. And he was one of the seven uh, that were appointed by the apostles to oversee the distribution of food to the widows in Jerusalem, particularly the Grecian widows who had been previously overlooked. Uh, one of the things we learned was that the names of these seven men that were given, they were all Greek names. And so we see the apostles very strategically and thoughtfully sharing power with sort of those of a different synagogue and, and empowering them and blessing them to carry out a ministry that had been overlooked. This was a good and wise decision for ensured that this important ministry that had been prescribed by God of looking after widows, that this was being done. And yet it also protected the mission of the church, where the apostles had been particularly set aside for the ministry of the word and prayer. So we guard the important ministry, but we also guard the mission of the church. And so we just see the wisdom of what happened there. Stephen's name leads the list in terms of those seven who had been selected. So his name is in the position of prominence. Uh, in fact, as you read your Bible and you see lists of names, typically the name that leads the list is in a position of prominence or stature. You'll often hear the names Peter, James, and John, Peter sort of being the first among equals. So that's just something to point out for you. But he's in this prominent position at the beginning of the list, and there's no, no wonder why when you look at his attributes, you look at his character, you look at who God had made him to be. He has a phenomenal reputation. It's the kind of description you want on your headstone. Uh, so look with me real quick in verse, uh, or chapter 6, verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then as we move down to verse 8, we get more description of him. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of the Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. And then here's another attribute, verse 10. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I don't think it's incidental either as we see sort of the sequence of these um, attributes as they're laid out. The first being full of faith. And from faith, we find full of the Holy Spirit. And from the power of the Holy Spirit, grace and power. And he is also one of the few in Acts, other than the apostles, who is able to perform signs and wonders. It's not normative for all Christians, but he is one who was not an apostle and yet was able to do this. And then we also see at the last verse there, 10, filled with wisdom as he engaged skeptics. So it's a, he's a pretty outstanding figure. 
Uh, in fact, with all of these good things said about him, he only has two chapters in Scripture. And in those two chapters, not a single negative thing is said about him. Um, I also think it just should be noted, just to underscore this, all of these attributes that we see here proceed from the Holy Spirit who is at work in him. So we don't just see here, you know, Stephen the Great, so to speak. We see the greatness of the Holy Spirit working through uh, an ordinary person like you and me. But with all of that in mind, I want to ask this question to kind of set off our, our time in the Word this morning, and that's this. How does such a good man, like Stephen, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, how is it that he receives such a horrific death at the end of chapter 7? How does it go so badly for him? Uh, so let's skip ahead now. So this is chapter 7, verse 54, and we're going to see about his death here. Chapter 7, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he, heard, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Okay, so we see an awful picture of his death. Let's come back to our question. There's actually going to be two. Whoops, a little early on this yet. How does such a good man like Stephen receive such a horrific death? And the second question we're going to look at is this. Why does Dr. Luke tell us this story? Uh, I think that's an important question to ask when we're going through the book of Acts because oftentimes it's difficult to determine what is prescriptive and what is just descriptive in the book of Acts. And one of the ways to sort that out is, is just to ask, why does Dr. Luke tell us this story? What does he want us to know? What, what might we not understand if we don't have this? What does this story capture for us? So the first thing we see, Stephen was a man with a fine reputation, yet he received an awful death. And the point that I want to draw out from this just by way of observation is this shows us that this is not a do-good, get-good world that we live in, right? And this might seem like a little bit of a paradox to you because I, I've taught you here even in, this, in the church uh, from the, the platform here that when we commit ourselves to discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we become more and more like Jesus, our Savior, as he transforms our character and nature, that this is a way that God is actually giving us our lives back, restoring to us our true humanity, restoring to us what was corrupted at the fall, marred at the fall. He's bringing the image of God back into our lives, which is a good thing for us, the way he meant us to be. So if that's a good thing, then why is it that Stephen suffers such as he does? Why is it that Christ suffered such as he did? 
In fact, what we find are that all of the apostles, nearly to a man, died not just of old age, but as martyrs for the faith. So if discipleship is good for us, why does it come with it such awful consequences for many of those who are most closely associated with Christ? Uh, And the answer uh, to it is simply this, because the more we become like Christ, that's good for us, but that means we will live askew from the world. It is good to become like Christ, but we will stick out and be obnoxious in a sense in the world such as it is. And that's really what Jesus teaches in, in John 15, 18. He says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. He goes on to say in John 16, 33, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we don't live in a do-good, get-good world. As we become disciples of Jesus Christ and he redeems our lives and restores our humanity, that is a good and wonderful thing for us. We ought to delight in that. And yet we will become, it will sort of make us, in a sense, hostile to the world. The world will not love us uh, for looking like our Savior. Secondly, Stephen was called to a service ministry Uh, But he still practiced a word ministry of proclaiming the gospel. So last week we saw how these seven had been set aside to help with sort of the administration uh, of of sort of the food for the widows. And so this was an administrative sort of uh, service or service to these folks. Uh, In fact, it's called table service in the text. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they did not have a word ministry. And I think that that really is something that stands out for us. We saw the wisdom of sort of differentiating these gifts. Okay, you have this particular gift. Please use it in service to the widows. Let's make sure we don't experience mission creep in the church. We want the apostles to be on the word and prayer. But we would fall, it would be false if we assumed that those who were given service ministries don't also have a word ministry. And Stephen certainly does. Um, and, and I think that's just something for all of us to be aware of as you experience your own different gifts. You can't say, you know what? Other people have the gift of preaching, teaching, evangelism, whatever. My gifts are over here in service and administration. Therefore, I'm off the hook. All Christians who have been saved by the grace of God are to have a word ministry, particularly in the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and we see that he does this um, again, in verse 9, we talk about, it talks about how this opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, and then they began to argue with Stephen, and in verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And I think this is a great encouragement for us, especially for those of you who feel like, you know, I'm not a naturally gifted speaker, and if you put me on the spot and said, tell me the gospel right now, I might stammer a little bit. You know, if you felt like that was a challenge for you, we see this as a direct fulfillment to something Jesus has promised earlier. In Luke 21, verse 12, listen to what he projected for the apostles and and for those who would be his followers. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. 
and so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind in advance not to worry uh, uh, beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And that is explicitly fleshed out here in the life of Stephen, who had a word ministry, was contradicted, and produced a wisdom based upon the Holy Spirit's influence that they couldn't challenge. And so just kind of bringing this into application again, as you use your spiritual gifts, whatever they are, whether they're gifts of service or gifts of kind of word ministry, all of us are to have a word ministry of the proclamation of the gospel. We ought to be actively looking for opportunities for gospel conversation. I am amazed when you look for them, they occur. When you look for them, they occur. And we have this great assurance that God will give us wisdom through the Holy Spirit to do this. So to put it in a nutshell here, Stephen served tables. But he also explained the gospel as people questioned him about it. Thirdly here, for proclaiming the gospel, everything went really well with him. Oh, maybe not. For proclaiming the gospel, he was charged with blasphemy against the temple and against the law. Uh, Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All those who were sitting at the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen And they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I want to pause there for a second, just to think about this. You bring a person into court, and you start charging them with something, and suddenly their face turns into an angelic representation. You know, maybe you say, I withdraw, you know, complaint, take him back. But they persist. So hard are their hearts. So let's define this word here, blasphemy. It's kind of a confusing word. We don't throw it around much today. Uh, It means to defame or to denigrate something, to speak lowly of something, uh, especially something sacred. And according to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 24, blasphemy against the name of the Lord uh, was something that was punished by death and death by stoning. And I want, to just, I want you to think about how ugly this is too, by the way. We often read words like flogged or stoning, and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, imagine a circle of people with fist-sized rocks and one sorry person in the middle who's being hit one after another until not just their point of their being unconscious, but killed. It is an awful manner of death. Also in Exodus 22, 28, it says... Don't blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. So it's these two statements in the law uh, that they feel Stephen has violated. And so these are the charges that they sort of bring against him. And to be honest with you, this might sound funny, but I think it's very understandable that very pious Jews 
who had already rejected Jesus, would come to this conclusion. I think it's understandable that they, they feel this way. And let me explain it, and I really want you to grasp this. Hear this loud and clear. If Stephen is proclaiming the gospel of grace, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, not through obedience to the law, nor through animal sacrifices in the temple, well, then what are the implications for pious Jews, the temple, and its workers? You can see how they would get here. If Christ kept the law for us, and Christ died for us for all of our transgressions once for all, it renders the sacrificial system and the law obsolete. Be quite a threat to the religious establishment. So what we find here, essentially what, what uh, Stephen is, is uh, proclaiming is that Jesus is the replacement of the temple and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So it's understandable why they get to this point of frustration, even if it's a little bit exaggerated or trumped up in the way that they, they address it. John Stott has a, a really great way, uh, way of framing this. He says, what Stephen was really doing was preaching Christ positively and constructively as the one in whom all the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed is fulfilled, including the temple and the law. So Stephen is teaching and preaching a positive thing. It's just that this positive thing happens to have some negative implications for the temple and the religious establishment. So then we get to the million-dollar question, and you can imagine this in a courtroom for all those courtroom drama shows you like to watch. And they say, yes or no, true or false. And the question comes down like that. Are these charges true? Well, it's a little complicated. It's a little nuanced. It requires a little explanation here. And so Stephen provides a defense. And I would just say this defense is not so much of himself as it is a defense of the gospel. And what he does is he reaches into the Old Testament to show his accusers that Jesus always has been the long-standing redemptive plan of God. And that their rejection of him and those who follow him is just like the hard-heartedness of their predecessors. So that's sort of the argument that he lays out here. And let me show you how he does it. He basically recalls four epochs in Israel's history here. Um, and this, is, I think, is brilliant, because basically he's saying, okay, let's argue from a shared place of authority. You believe in the Old Testament law? Great. I'm going to make my gospel proclamation from there. And so, again, in these 50 verses that we're not going to read through, can I get a little thank you for that? Here are the four epochs. Abraham in the patriarchal age. Joseph in the Egyptian exile. Moses and the Exodus, and the wanderings. And then finally, David and Solomon and sort of the establishing of the monarchy. So at first glance, if you were to read through these 50 verses, you're going to say, man, it just feels like he's telling Israel's history here. And you would think, what an irritation. You know, the, the, the folks, religious leaders would be like, we know this. This is our history. It's our family story. What are you telling us here? So at first glance, a glimpse, it just sort of looks random. But actually, Stephen is being much more strategic in what he is telling and how he's doing it. He is providing case law, precedent, 
against these twofold charges against him. So charge number one, blasphemy against the temple. Charge number two, blasphemy against the law. So one of the things that I would, and you're going to go back and read through this this week, I hope, what I want you to look for as you read through it is this. What ties all of these stories together? What is it about these cases, these precedents, that makes his point? And I'm going to give you the answer up front, and you're going to go back and see it. Regarding charge number one, blasphemy against the temple, what Stephen shows is, hey, God's presence has never been limited to any particular place or building or structure. God has always been, his presence has always been primarily tied to his people, not buildings. And so he makes that point kind of going through their history. Through Abraham, where did God meet with Abraham? He called him out of Ur, out of Mesopotamia, way over there. And guess what? He was with Joseph. And where was he with Joseph? Well, it was in Egypt, even with him in the dungeon. And where was he with Moses? All over the place, including wandering through the wilderness. And then finally, even though he permitted, and that's a key word, permitted David and Solomon to build the temple, David who did the fundraising, Solomon who actually constructed it, he gave them an explicit caution when he permitted them to do so. And the caution is right here in the text in verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my, home, my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So these cases, these four cases that he pulls out regarding charge number one, blasphemy against the temple, perhaps it's you who has a wrong view of the temple. God's presence isn't imprisoned here. Not in any particular place, not in any particular building or structure. God has always been tied to his people, not buildings. And as we find throughout the scripture, Jesus is the true and greater temple. All right, regarding charge number two. Have you guys ever had to go, have you ever been a part of a grand jury here in town, maybe in Fairbanks, anybody? I have. I think it's a fascinating experience. I'm kind of like an annoying person who maybe wants to do it when they call you. Although at first you realize, oh, these are the people we live with in the community. There's some weird things going on around here as you go through the cases. But they kind of read you, here's the charge, here's the standard, and does this meet the standard in order to advance in the process? So we've looked at charge number one. Okay, charge number two, blasphemy against the law. And the thing that these epochs, these precedents, this case law has in common uh, regarding this charge is the hard-heartedness that God's people have always had towards his movement and towards his representatives. And so basically what Stephen is showing here is that, hey, the temple and the law have always been temporary, tutorial. They were a means to an end, but not the end in and of themselves. We saw in the book of Galatians when we went through that particular series, you heard me say this over and over again, the law was never meant to save, it was meant to show. It was meant to show us our need for a savior. 
Christ himself taught that he did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it, which means to perform it for us. So Stephen shows once again that it is they and not he who have a troubled relationship with the law. They're stubbornly clinging to it, trusting in their own performance and their sacrifices to save themselves. And in so doing, they have missed the Savior whom God sent for them. And so in this way, Stephen kind of really brilliantly takes their indictment against him and flips it over and says, you know what? I'm on the side of God's redemptive plan. You're in the place of stiff-necked rebels who are obstinate to the work of the Holy Spirit, just as your forefathers were. And in case it wasn't absolutely clear, he moves to closing arguments. Closing arguments, verse 51, begin like this. You stiff-necked people. Them are fighting words, right? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, meaning, man, you bear the outward mark of the covenant people of God, but not inwardly. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. If there is a center point in this whole message, it's that right there. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given to the angels, but have not obeyed it. It reminds me again of you know, what Jesus said. You search the law intensely because you think that in it, it contains eternal life. They speak of me. So here we moved kind of, all right, now once he said that to them, how do they respond? Verse 54, the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth. What does that look like? Gnashing of teeth. You know, picture a conservative Baptist business meeting or something like that. They gnashed their teeth. And I'll stop right there to say also, I don't think this is the reason why he was killed. I think it was the thing that happened next. This first thing just made him really mad. Here's why he was killed. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And so uh, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Christian church, which I would say, honestly, is a place of pride. Um, And I want to come back to our second question. Why does Dr. Luke tell us about his martyrdom? Why are we given this? What wouldn't we know? What might we not understand if this hadn't been included in the book of Acts here? And I think what it tells us is this, that it is through martyrdom and persecution that God actually initiates his worldwide mission. Um, I think what this shows us 
is that the rise of the Christian church will happen as God promised, and nothing will stop it. When we think of what was told to the apostles in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then next was Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. This particular passage is at the crux of that expansion. So far, the church has just been in Jerusalem, and they've had some pretty exciting days of lots of people being added to their number. But now it's going to expand into the new territory, Judea and Samaria. And what actually pushes it into that territory is not success and power and skill and capability. It's actually persecution. Because what follows here from from the martyrdom of Stephen is now the pious Jews are up in arms and they are after Christians. And we see this Saul figure ominously noted here. Later in the book of Acts, we hear he is breathing out murderous threats. It is persecution that actually spreads uh, the Christian faith out into the surrounding regions. And so this is just as the second century church father, Tertullian, has famously said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That's how it was spread and distributed. But I think what we are meant to see in this is the sovereign hand of God at work, doing what he said he would do against all odds, even in ways that we might not expect. We think of the words of Jesus, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So I want to bring this to a conclusion here. What we find, a really good man who had a really good witness, who gave a, gave a really good defense of the gospel. And for doing these really good things, he suffered an awful and unjust death, just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, his death became a catalyst for the expansive mission of God in the world. So I want to bring this to kind of confront two groups that are maybe here this morning. Uh, The first is this. Those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you the question, are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Are you like one of those stiff-necked people? You've heard the gospel. You know that Jesus was given as a provision for your sin, and you have yet to turn in saving faith to him. You're hanging, hanging on to your ways of saving yourself, Or maybe you're just thinking, I'll do it someday. I've got some wild things to do in the meantime. You don't want a new authority in your life right now. And I I just want to confront you with with what uh, Stephen says here. You always resist the Holy Spirit. I want to challenge you today, if that's been the position that you've been in, that you would finally bow the knee. You would finally say, I repent of my sin, of my willfulness, and I receive Christ as my Savior. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to offer a prayer that I hope you would say. The second group, I would say, it's for those of you who have already crossed the line of faith. You know that Christ died for you. You know that he performed the law for you. You know that you don't need any more sacrifices because he's done that for you. You know that the gospel is the greatest news ever. And my challenge to you would be, will you carry that gospel message in regular conversation with those that you're around. It saves people from eternal destruction. 
Will you carry gospel conversations where you go? And I would remind you of, of the words that the author of Hebrews gives. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So I want to offer a prayer right now. If, you've, uh, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and you know you've been resisting the Holy Spirit and you've been waiting for that moment when he draws you, I would hope that this would be it. So will you pray with me? God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I've inherited the guilt of Adam's sin and I have sinned myself throughout life. I recognize that this is an offense against you, a holy God. I recognize I cannot save myself through good deeds or effort or sacrifices or anything. And so I repent of my sin and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. As the one who obeyed the law perfectly for me. And the one who was sacrificed for me that my sins would be punished in him and I would be reconciled to you. So Jesus, today I become a Christian one who believes in Christ and one who wants to follow him. Lord, for the rest of us, we rejoice in the good news that we've received. I pray that you would work on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Whatever gifts you have entrusted to us, may they be saturated also by the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ. May we be those who are ambassadors for God Almighty, for the salvation that he has secured for us in Jesus. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen.